Hello, and welcome to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast by Nathan Sixeraris, and my bills let me down. I am recording, there are four minutes or so left in the game, it's 38 to 15, and I overestimated the bills. Uh, I'll Full recaps coming up, uh, not going to get too into it here in the introduction, just kind of trying to keep things moving, not get too depressed. Pretty rough sports night, the Rangers, again outplayed the Penguins for about 58 minutes and could not find an answer late when they needed one. Their top six has left a lot to be desired. Uh, They're still not using their players in the right situations. They need to start using whoever's playing with Adam Fox as the first defensive pair late in games. I understand that the perception of Jacob Truba is that he's your number one defenseman. He's not. He's not. Adam Fox is the number one defenseman on the Rangers. Going forward, considering the Rangers were the road team tonight, they didn't have last change. Fox needs to be out there, at, period. There's there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Adam Fox needs to be out there at the end-of-game situations as your best defenseman. Whoever you want to put him with, I don't particularly care, but Fox needs to be out there, not true. But you want to do Fox and Miller? That's fine with me. I could live with that. Easy. All right. Now that I've gotten my 30 seconds of Rangers frustration out, let's just talk a little bit football. Two games today. Came in with pretty high expectations from entertainment value. The first game lived up to the hype. Packers-Buccaneers, pretty entertaining game. Back and forth, seesaw kind of game. Came down to the last possession. Uh, uh, What we want from a conference title game. Uh, Bills-Chiefs was not that. It was... It got away from the Bills pretty quick. I'm just going to be frank with you. It got away from the Bills way too quick. They played way too conservatively. They did did not play to win. Neither did the Packers. But before I get to the fun, please help grow the show. Subscribe. If you're listening, spread the word. Tell someone else about it. Share the link. Post it somewhere. Throw us a retweet. Share us on your Instagram stories. Share us on Snapchat. Help grow the show spread the conversation it means a lot it helps every single listen counts when you're organically growing a show from the grassroots follow on twitter upper bull gm follow me on twitter at nick Zararis. follow the blog where my written stuff goes up at gotham sn i'll have a rangers blog up probably monday might be tuesday depends when an editor can get to it probably a football blog as well depends a lot of content a lot of stuff coming up Good time to be a sports fan. As I've said a lot in the last few weeks, a really good time to be a sports fan. Even though my bills let me down, I'll see you guys on the other side of the drop. They end up going to the flat, or they do that, and then go right to the middle. Take it and go right there, or back to the flat. Here's Mahomes. Look at underhand, and he throws it for the touchdown! During that drop, the Bills recovered the onside kick, so maybe the Bills can salvage a couple teasers in the process of me recording this episode, but... I'll start I'll start here with the Bills and Chiefs because this game is fresher in my mind and it's being played still in the background while I'm recording this. The Bills offense just could never really find the rhythm that guided them through the second half of the regular season where they only lost the one game to the the Cardinals on the Hail Murray. Uh, down the stretch the Bills were beating teams by two possessions every single game. 
Josh Allen looked like a legitimate MVP candidate, and it didn't matter that they weren't able to run the ball and that they were soft in the middle of the field. Speaking from purely a matchup perspective, the Bills had no answer for Travis Kelsey, which was probably the biggest problem in this game. I mean, Kelsey had eight receptions a quarter and a half into the game, and I get it. Kelsey is one of, if not the best tight ends to ever play the position in the history of organized football. No one is disputing that. The Bills played too conservatively on defense. They sat in zone too much and allowed Mahomes to pick them apart underneath, which eventually opened up the deep shots because the Bills started cheating up, trying to play that underneath stuff, and you get beat here, you get beat there. You let, Ke- you let Kelsey catch a ball, break one tackle, he's off to the races. You let Tyree Kill catch a ball underneath, get through his own, he's gone. No one can keep up with him. I didn't like what I saw from the Bills on defense today. They were, they left a lot to be desired on defense. And I never expected the Bills defense to be the reason they were in this game. And someone should have told Sean McDermott that. Because all due respect to McDermott as a coach, all due respect to Trey White, Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde, Jerry Hughes, Ed Oliver, Matt Milano, A.J. Klein. There are legitimate NFL players on that defense who are worthy of respect. On no planet in any universe were the was the Bills' defense going to be the reason they won this game today. You are not holding Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs to less than 28 points in a game in the NFL. You're just not. Barring a fluke thing, fluke bounce, weird bounce, like what happened in the Falcons game a couple, uh, week 16 of the regular season, or the Dolphins game where the Chiefs didn't break 30 points till late in the game, You do not win against elite teams in the NFL anymore with defense. It is not schematically or practically possible, and it's why the Bills lost this game. Sean McDermott electing to kick field goals, assuming his defense would be able to hold the other team to field goals or get four and outs is just absolutely absurd. I was, I don't want, you know what, I'll say, I was repulsed with the Bills game plan today. There was no effort to exploit the Chiefs' weaknesses as a defense. The defense, the Chiefs are an aggressive defense. You can beat them with play action. You can beat them with screen passes. You can beat them with the read option. And the Bills made no effort to break out any tools in their toolbox to exploit those weaknesses. And in turn, it allowed the Chiefs to exploit them on offense. The Bills were forced into obvious passing situations because they were chasing most of the game, which allows the Chiefs to send pressure, leave their defensive backs in man coverage. And I got to give a lot of credit. Kansas City's secondary was excellent today. They gave the Bills receivers no room down the field to try and make plays on the ball. When you saw any of the replays where Josh Allen was taking one of those boneheaded sacks where he was trying to scramble and break tackles and ended up losing 20 yards, almost in every single one of those cases, there was no one open. And I'll be frank, the Kansas City secondary, aside from Tyron Matthew, is not good. None of those corners are shut down, elite, any any of that kind of verbiage. No Kansas City corner is that good. Whether you're talking about Chavarius Ward, Rashad Breeland, Rashad Fenton, none of those guys is a number one guy who's going to shut anyone down. 
the Chiefs' secondary success is contingent upon their pass rush, whether it's Clark, Frank Clark, whether it's Chris Jones. Someone in the box has to be getting home and getting pressure on the quarterback for that secondary to hold up, which they did a really good job of today. I The Bills' offensive line was solid all year long, and today, when they needed them to hold up against the pass rush, did not do a good job. It put Josh Allen in bad situations, and, all right, I'm putting my hand up like a guy in basketball who took a really bad foul in the in, in the paint on someone driving to let the crowd know, yeah, that was me, that was me. I was wrong. Josh Allen wilted under the lights, and it's reasonable to expect more from someone who showed you more during the course of the regular season. I don't want to say the moment was too big for the Bills because that's a cliche and I hate cliches, but the decisions that were made in this moment made it seem like it was a too big of a moment for the Bills. McDermott got kicking field goals before the end of the half and then late in the third, midway through the third quarter, indefensible. Under no circumstance can you go for a field goal in either of those situations. You are not beating the Chiefs today. If you do not score more than 35 points, like even if the Bills defense played a picture perfect game plan, if this game went the complete inverse and the Bills managed to win in that universe, the score of this game is at least 42, 35, something in that ballpark. No matter what, the Chiefs are going to get theirs on offense. And it's what was so frustrating about the Bills game plan today. It was extremely conservative. There were no attempts to exploit the obvious mismatches. The Bills did not look for Singletary out of the backfield. They did not look for Yeldon out of the backfield, aside from that one catch he made where Josh Allen was rolling to his right and almost went out of bounds before throwing it, and Yeldon made a really nice catch. They should have looked to use their running backs more because Kansas City's linebackers are very bad in man coverage. I would have liked to have seen more Dawson Knox in the passing game, He offers you an element in that middle part of the field where, again, the Chiefs middle linebacker, the the Chiefs linebackers in general are probably the weakest part of their defense. And then Honey Badger is floating around. He's kind of, I don't want to say he's positionless, but he's essentially positionless where he can float. And since they rush a lot, they play a lot of zone, they do a lot of zone blitzes. He's floating around, but if you get the ball to your playmakers, good things happen. Josh Allen was holding on to the ball a lot, and there weren't any in-game adjustments from the Bills, which really frustrated me. As Not only someone who bet the Bills, but just someone who wanted to see a close football game, man. I expected more from the Bills coming into this game, which is really what sucks. During the course of the regular season, Sean McDermott was one of the most aggressive coaches in the league in terms of going forward on fourth down and passing in early down situations. They still passed in early down situations, but the go-for-it situations were important, man. They really, really were. Look, do I think the Bills get both of the fourth down conversions they should have gone for? Just speaking statistically, statistical probability, probably not. But 38-31 looks a lot better in the box score, and you cover your teasers, which, which does matter to quite a few people out there in the world. But enough of me droning on about the Bills. Let me just, let me give kudos to the Chiefs who deserve it. 
aside from the Patriots, you don't see teams that are able to exploit favorable situations well anymore, just because there were so few smart individuals running football teams anymore. The Chiefs realized pretty damn quickly that this Mahomes kid, you know, Patrick Mahomes, he's pretty good, pretty good quarterback. And once they realized Mahomes was their guy, they did everything in their power to maximize what's around him. Yes, the Kansas City offensive line is pretty suspect, especially at guard, both left and right guard. But relatively speaking, their offense is as good as you can possibly scheme. Andy Reid, a genius. Some team is going to hire Eric Bieniemy eventually to be their head coach, and whether or not he's a good head coach remains to be seen, but at this point, I think you kind of got to take a chance on him just because of the success the Chiefs have had. What they did with Kelsey in the first half to... I, it's Okay, this is a, a mindset I've been workshopping for a while, but what the Chiefs do with their short passing game is no different than what they do, than what a traditional football team does running the ball on first down. Instead of, you know, running for four yards on first down to set up second and six, you know what the Chiefs do? They throw to Travis Kelsey for seven yards on first down and set up second and three. That way you can run, you can play action pass, you can roll out, you can RPO, you can read option if Mahomes is feeling especially mobile that week, like they did last week against the Browns. Using those early down situations to exploit mismatches and keep unpredictable. It's one point I've been harping on for most of football season this year, especially on the podcast, is you never want to be predictable. And it's what the Chiefs did so well this year. Don't get me wrong, early on, especially the first half of the season, they were really trying to get Clyde Edwards Alaire going. And I understand he was your first-round pick. You have no other running backs on your roster with substantial NFL experience. Yes, they had Darrell Williams. And then, yes, they brought in Le'Veon Bell about midway through the season after the Jets cut him. But what made the Chiefs so dangerous today as an offense was that they were always in favorable passing situations. And then, on top of being in good situations... They have maybe the two best playmakers in the entire sport. I personally think Kittle is better than Kelsey, especially because of the run blocking, the blocking aspect of his game. But Kelsey and Tyree Kill are pretty much undefendable. If you want to guard Kelsey and like really make an effort to slow him down, you've got to put your number one corner on him. And who are you going to put on Tyree Kill? There's no one on God's green earth who's going to keep up with Tyree Kill in a foot race. I, maybe, not, in, not in football, at least. Maybe you go to the Olympics, you get a track guy who can run, you know, a 9.79 100-meter dash, and maybe they could keep up with Tyree Kill. But from a scheme perspective, there's not a whole lot you can do against the Chiefs to beat them, especially trying to do it defensively. I understand McDermott's a good coach, I don't want to, it's really hard to not judge people off of the biggest moments of their careers, but McDermott laid an egg in the biggest game of his coaching life today. When his team needed him to nut up and 
make an aggressive decision and go for it on fourth down. Put the ball in the hands of your best player, Josh Allen, to make a play. They either didn't do it at all or there just wasn't a play there. And I think a lot of people expected Brian Dabble, the Bills offensive coordinator, to get a head coaching job based on what he did with Josh Allen this year. But it doesn't seem like that that's going to happen. I mean... The two guys rumored for the Houston Texans head coaching job, which is the only job still open, are Leslie Frazier, the Bills defensive coordinator, and Jim Caldwell, the former Detroit Lions and Indianapolis Colts head coach. Those are the two guys rumored for that job, but Dabble, that entire Bills offense left a lot to be desired. I understand what the Bills did in the regular season. It worked because they were a quick strike offense, short incremental passes underneath stuff, exploiting one-on-one mashups because of the versatility. You have Diggs, you have Cole Beasley, you have John Brown, you have Dawson Knox. All those guys, one-on-one against an average corner, can make something happen. Today, though, they had a hard time doing that, and because the Chiefs were able to get so much pressure through blitzing, and design pressure where it wasn't necessarily a blitz, but it might have been a stunt, it might have been a late blitz, a delayed blitz rather, where an edge rusher initially acts like they're going to drop back in coverage and then comes in, that kind of thing. They were able to make Josh Allen's life difficult. And coming into this game, when Josh Allen needed to make a play during the course of the regular season or the Bills' first two postseason games, especially the game against the Colts, Someone was able to get open downfield because he was able to extend the play for so long. But today, when he tried to extend the play against the Chiefs, they were wrapping him up or he was breaking off one tackle, looking downfield, and then getting sacked for a 20 or 30 yard loss and setting up unmanageable game situations. You don't have something on your play sheet for second and 28 or third and 25. You just they, There isn't something on your play sheet you have schemed up to, to pick that up. It's just an untenable situation. And the Bills might come away from that game feeling like, well, we got pretty close. We did a good job. We didn't have the right plays. We almost, we hung in there with the Chiefs. That's not my takeaway. My biggest takeaway from that game is that the Chiefs are exactly as good as everyone thought they were. Yeah. Yes, I understand that for three and a half, for two and a half months, for about nine, ten weeks, the Chiefs covered one spread, and that kind of soured a lot of people's perception of them, including me. I picked the Bills. I had the Bills in multiple bets going into this weekend. I thought they were riding the hot hands. They had momentum. They had Josh Allen playing at a high level, and I overthought it. When you watch as much football as I do, you read as much as I consume, you occasionally start to overthink things, and it happens. There's always tomorrow. We're going to have hockey, we're going to have basketball, we're going to have soccer. I'm not worried about the bets, but from a narratives, a team building, a philosophy standpoint, my biggest gripe that the Bills got away from what made them successful in the regular season. The Bills are successful in the regular season because they were aggressive. 
They pushed the ball down the field. They attempted medium to deep passes. They used play action, even if their running game wasn't effective. And they made the other team off balance, which is something I keep circling back around to, being unpredictable, keeping the other team off balance. They both mean the same thing. You want to be able to impose your will on the other team, like the Chiefs did to the Bills today, where every single time the Chiefs had the ball, I just assumed they were going to go down the field and score a touchdown. I mean, the Chiefs punted once because the receiver dropped the third down conversion. There was an interception, and they held him to a field goal. It's not like the Bills' defense is bad. The Bills' defense is above average. It's not good. It's not dominant. It's above average. Against an average team or a mediocre team, they can they can hold their own. Kansas City embarrassed them. Travis Kelsey is a mismatch on anyone you would conventionally line up against a tight end. Conventional football, you either put a linebacker or a safety on a tight end. Against every player in the league that isn't Devin White, Devin Bush, Darius Leonard, those kind of linebackers were someone like like John Johnson on the Rams, or Jesse Bates on the Bengals. You need an elite athlete to be on Travis Kelsey, where a tight end typically is. I would say Jamal Adams, but we all know Jamal Adams is a linebacker who's basically an edge rusher, but moonlights as a safety for some reason. In Madden, you can put Jamal Adams on Travis Kelsey and he'd be fine, but in real life, Jamal Adams would be in hell. But... From a purely schematic tempo, schematic theme rather, the Chiefs used their mismatches. No one on the Bills defense could cover Hill. The thing that makes Hill so, so dangerous, is, aside from his obvious straight line speed, we all know he's got world-class NFL speed in a straight line, is that they can get him the ball in space because he releases off the line of scrimmage so well, where he can run a stick route, he can run a zig route, he can run anything within five yards of the line of scrimmage, which you would typically in your mind be like, all right, that's a nice pickup for first down, is he catches that and then takes it another 30 yards down the field because he can catch, make one guy miss, and he's off to the races. It's an unrivaled skill set in the NFL as far as I'm concerned. There's... I know the Raiders drafted Henry Ruggs to be a Walmart Tyreek Hill. He's not a Walmart Tyreek Hill. That's an insult to Walmart Tyreek Hills. That kind of speed in Andy Reid's offense is unstoppable. And the last thing I want to touch on in this game is just the career renaissance Andy Reid has had. Before Andy Reid won the Super Bowl last year, the trailing narrative about him was that he could not win the big game because of his game management. I mean, Michael Lombardi, you know, the former Patriots executive, the former Browns general manager, the writer at The Athletic, the guy who has the podcast named The GM Shuffle, who passes him off himself off as a football expert because of a lifetime in football, used to say that Andy Reid should outsource his game management to India. You know, like, the joke people make about Microsoft or Sony or any company you have to call customer service for help for, how all those jobs got outsourced to India, 
Someone who has a life in football used to make a joke about Andy Reid's game management being that bad. He should give it to someone else. Andy Reid got himself the most physically talented player to ever play quarterback in the National Football League. And the Chiefs have been, I don't want to say unstoppable because they've obviously lost games here and there. I mean, yes, they won the Super Bowl last year, but they, they've lost games here or there. They lost in the AFC title game the year before. They got to the Super Bowl this year. They're not unstoppable, but they're as close to a Big 12 offense as we've ever seen in the NFL, both conceptually, play play management style, game management style. The Chiefs keep the other team in hell when they're on defense for four quarters. The other team has no clue what is coming. On any down, in any situation, because of how versatile of an offense the Chiefs have. The pre-snap motion, the route concepts where you have things like flood, you have levels, you have Mahomes' mobility, which is an underrated aspect of his game, which I know he didn't have any designed runs like he did last week against the Browns, but Mahomes can buy himself time in that pocket. He can throw from any arm angle to any depth of field from, like, any body position. The Chiefs' offense is unstoppable. There have been a few offenses in my lifetime as a football observer, fan, armchair expert, uh, upper bowl GM, I can say, that have jumped off of the screen how creative and explosive they are. The 2007 Patriots... The first year Peyton Manning was in Denver. The Ravens offense with Lamar Jackson last year. The Rams offense the year they went to the Super Bowl. And that's really it. Those four, you want to say the year Drew Brees threw for like 5,200 yards? I'll give you that. That was on a pretty mediocre Saints team that ended up making the playoffs because it was a pretty bad NFC South division that year. I, I, I can respect someone who could say that from a con- conceptual standpoint because the Saints are still using that offense. I mean, they don't run the same plays, but they're running the same principles, that kind of thing. Those five and what Andy Reid's doing in Kansas City now are the most creative offenses. Andy Reid was a very good football coach when he ran the Eagles. I used to loathe the Philadelphia Eagles because of how they always beat the Giants. Because Andy Reid put his guys in a position to succeed. Whether it was Jeremy Macklin, it was Jason Avant, it, it, it was Deshaun Jackson. The Eagles tormented me for most of my life. Brian Westbrook out of the backfield. I know everyone talks about the type, how good Andy Reid running backs typically are because the running backs are running into favorable situations where the other team doesn't know what's coming. So should we be playing run or pass? Well, if we have to defend both, we're not dedicated to one, which makes it easier to run the ball. It's what makes the Chiefs so efficient on offense. Aside from the fact they have the best quarterback on the planet Earth, the other team is off balance and they are guessing what they need to be preventing on defense. I know I've heard more than one person in the NFL universe refer to it as battleship defense, where you're guessing what the other team is going to do. 
so if I'm assuming most of the known universe has played the board game Battleship where, you know, you, you lay out the five pieces on your board and then you're going to guess who's on the other side, where the person you're playing ships are on their board. You give like E7, F5, that kind of thing. That's what defenses have to do when they're playing the Chiefs is, well, it's second and three. Should we be playing the deep shot to Tyree Kill? Should we be playing the run? Should we be playing a leak screen to Travis Kelsey? Should we be playing a Mahomes read option? When you have to be committed to all of those possibilities, you can't possibly be ready for any of them. After the Raiders blew the Thursday night football game to the Chargers, I wrote a full-length, in-depth breakdown ranking all 32 NFL coaches in order based on the confidence I would have in them betting on them to win a football game. Because let's be honest, the power rankings that, like, you know, ESPN and Bleacher Report put out are cute and all, and, like, the lead columnist who writes them thinks they're being very insightful, but at no point during the regular season did I, you know, think the Saints were better than the Chiefs. No point in the regular season did I think that the Packers were better than the Chiefs. So, in those rankings, I had Andy Reid ranked first overall for a reason. He is the best head coach in the league of the best player in the league and puts the best player in the league in a position to succeed, which is why Mahomes, and by extension the rest of that offense, jumps off the screen so much. Yes, all of those players, whether it's Hill, whether it's Kelsey, whether it's Edward Delaire, whether it's Byron Pringle, it's Sammy Watkins, if it's McCole Hardman, those guys all look as good as they do because that offense is so expertly schemed and the play calling is excellent. I'll be honest, man. It's really hard to be a dynasty in football, but if D4 doesn't line up offsides in the AFC title game in 2018, the Chiefs win that game. The Chiefs go and beat the Rams in that Super Bowl. Not much of a doubt in my mind that the Chiefs win that game against the Rams if they play them. The Rams, that scored, you know, three points in the whole damn game. I'd like to think the Chiefs would be going for a three-peat right now if D. Ford had lined up offsides in that AFC title game in 2018. But with all of that said, I want to try and be sentimental about the Bills, that they accomplished a lot, that this was a step in the right direction, that their coach is good, their offensive coordinator is good, their defensive coordinator is good. You can take all of that, and those are all reasonable points based on the sample, based on what you got this year, but I know I already saw quite a bit of conjecture about it before the game was even over. Like, like I started recording before it was over, people started making their end-of-game proclamations, and I saw more than one person say that this was probably an outlier, that Josh Allen won't be this good again, that... The Bills exceeded their expectations this year because Josh Allen played so well, and it remains to be seen whether he can consistently do that. And that's reasonable. As someone who believes in the importance of 
a long-term sample size before you make an evaluation. I understand those points and that you want to see Josh Allen do this over a consistent, sustained, long period of time. That's very fair. My point here about the Bills and their direction isn't about Josh Allen. It's about everything around Josh Allen. Aside from Josh Allen, aside from Stephon Diggs, aside from Tredavious White, there are no elite players on this Buffalo Bills team. Most of these teams that get this far in the playoffs, they have more than three elite players. I know that's just generalization, conceptual mindset. That these are it's a perception. It's anecdotal evidence, if you will, that I don't I, I didn't go back and check every single team that's made the conference championship game the last few years to evaluate how many elite players are on each team, but the Bills have three. The team they played today, the Chiefs, Mahomes, Kelsey, Hill, Tyron Matthew. That's four. In the other game, the Packers, they have Aaron Rodgers, they have Devontae Adams, they have Corey Lindsley. When David Bakhtiari's healthy, they have him, they have Jair Alexander. That's five. Did the Packers play the Buccaneers? Brady, Evans, Godwin, Tristan Wirfs, Devin White. I'll go out and say it, Jason Pierre-Paul. That's six. You gotta have those game-changing difference makers on both sides of the ball if you want to make it to the freaking Super Bowl. You go back, you look at the historical record. Last year, the Chiefs had the same group. The 49ers, they had Bosa, they had Eric Armstead, George Kittle. Last year, Raheem Mostert was a game-breaking player. I mean, the man had more 20-yard rushes than any other player in the league. You gotta have at least four or five of those elite guys, and then subsequent players around them. And it remains to be seen if Josh Allen is that elite guy. I like to think he is. He showed a considerable jump this year. I mean, PFF, for all of its warts in terms of how it grades things, yes, the way they calculate grades weighs certain things more importantly than others, but if you look through their records for like EPA and jump in efficiency, no player has had a bigger leap from year one to year three ever than Josh Allen. And it makes sense. Allen went from being a 52% completion percentage guy as a rookie to 68% this year, 69. I want to say it was 68.2% completion in his third year. We got to see if Allen can do this again, but I think the Bills probably do end up taking a step back next year just because of the laws of probability. Uh, it's really hard to win football games in the NFL, as easy as I try to make it sound, as easy and straightforward as it seems to win games in the NFL. A lot of teams don't take advantage of the resources and situations they have in front of them. The Bills probably do end up taking a step back next year. They are a team that play greater than the sum of their parts, is how I'll surmise them. Individual talent-wise, there's not a ton. There's no stud offensive lineman. There's no elite pass rusher. There's no awesome Mike linebacker. They've got an elite quarterback based on one season, an all-pro wide receiver in Stephon Diggs, who's legit, and Trey White. That's it. That's it. Trey White is awesome, but there's no one on God's green earth who's going to lock up Tyreek Hill. And even if you put Trey White on Kelsey more than once today, 
when they did have Trey White on Kelsey, Kelsey was just out physicaling him at the line of scrimmage or down the field, and there's just nothing you can do about that. The Bills made a jump this year. I don't think they are in the tier of AFC contenders with the Chiefs. And that's how I will wrap up game number one. Now, going back to game number one of the Conference Championship Sunday, the Packers and the Buccaneers. Another example of coaching cowardice. As long as I will live, I will never understand a head coach taking the ball out of their best player's hand to take a field goal and hope their defense can get a stop. Now, this would be one thing if you were, let's say, the Rams or the Steelers. You have an elite defense that you feel like maybe we can get a turnover. Our defense is so good that we can get the quarterback under pressure. We can force a bad decision. The Packers defense, Mike Pettin, those guys, they're not the Rams. They're not the Steelers. They're not the Dolphins. They're not the football team. They're not, they're not that good. Yeah, they got three interceptions out of Tom Brady today, but... Let's be real here. Those weren't pressure. All right, I'll be fair. One of them was a pressure where Sav- where Darnell Savage, the safety, the free safety blitzed, and Brady just airmailed the ball down the field. It was an arm punt, like the Twitter account that's out there calls. It was an arm punt. It was on third and medium. If he throws that away, they would have punted anyway. So, arm punt. All right, even so. They got three interceptions out of Tom Brady. And they still ended up chasing the game to try and win. The Packers had every opportunity to win the game today. And they just, they they didn't have it, man. I was wrong about this game more than I was the other game. The other game, I was being irrational. I can say... In sound state of mind, now that the Bills-Chiefs game is over, I did not look at the evidence, and I was being irrational thinking the Bills were going to win. This game, the evidence told you that, aside from their regular season matchup, that the Packers were better. When the Packers threw the ball in early down situations, they moved the ball up and down the field. This Packers team was not last year's Packers team. They were going to be able to hang around in this title game against another elite team. They hung around today, but... They did not do their quarterback any favors, man. Rodgers had a pretty good game. It wasn't a vintage Rodgers performance. There wasn't one of those third and eight, roll out, roll out. All right, no one's open. I got to take off. I got to beat someone to the pylon. In fact, I know a lot of people who are, you know, supposedly experts. Uh, I While I paused before when I was taking a break to take a sip of water, I was scrolling Twitter and saw Shannon Sharp. You know, NFL Hall of Famer has the show with Skip Bayless, who tries to portray himself as an expert, say, well, Aaron Rodgers should have tried to run to the pylon and rolled the dice. Aaron Rodgers ran a 4-7-1-40 2005, 16 years ago. 
You know what? Uh, the closest guy to uh, Aaron Rodgers, Devin White, the uh, Buccaneers linebacker, ran his 40 time, 2019. 4-4-1. On no planet, in no universe, in any galaxy, in any existence, on in no plane of existence, in any universe, any multiverse, was Aaron Rodgers beating Devin White to the pylon. He's just not. So l- let's not relitigate this for the wrong reasons. You want to put blame on someone for the Packers losing today? It's on the defense, and it's on Matt LaFleur. Not Mike LaFleur, the guy the uh, Jets hired to be their offensive coordinator. Matt LaFleur. The situations in which the Packers kicked field goals. In the fensible. I know, I know, I know. Especially the second one. The one in the fourth quarter that made it an eight-point game. I know there were a few win probability models out there that said that kicking the field goal was the right decision. I would rather lose Aaron Rodgers throwing for the end zone and it goes incomplete and the Bucks have to go 95, 6 yards, whatever it was. I think they were about the 8-yard line when they opted to kick the field goal because it was an incomplete on third down because... Rodgers tried to force it through the middle of the field to uh, Devontae Adams, who was being covered by Devin White. I just, I understand why the probability model said to go field goal because a fourth and goal from the eight or nine yard line would have been difficult. But from a philosophy, uh, game management, a mentality standpoint, if you will, I would rather go out swinging. And I understand to a football coach being aggressive and trying to win is like the antithesis of being a football coach. Every football coach is way too conservative in every aspect of their game management. If it were up to me, I would never punt once I crossed the 40-yard line and it was less than a 7 yards to the conversion rate. It's how you win. Uh, it works in Madden. It'll work in real life, at least in game management situations. If you go for it on fourth down, you have an inherent advantage because you're getting more touches with your quarterback. The more times your quarterback touches the ball, the better chances you have of winning the game, especially when your quarterback is freaking Aaron Rodgers, man. That's one of the three best guys to ever play the position in organized football history, and he was never in a position to succeed. The Buccaneers. To their credit, and Todd Bowles, their defensive coordinator's credit, they had Rodgers off balance a lot of the afternoon. The matchup I thought was going to be important was going to be where Jason Pierre-Paul came from. And I was half right. I was half right in that matchup. Pierre-Paul had a pretty good time against Billy Turner, who was in at left tackle for the injured David Bakhtiari. Pierre-Paul had a couple of sacks. The matchup that really jumped off the screen that was really a mismatch was Shaq Barrett against Rick Wagner. Rick Wagner, pretty good reputation, solid offensive tackle, played for the Lions for a number of years, pretty solid during the course of the regular season. The Packers were the best offensive line in pass win rate where they gave their quarterback, they gave Rodgers more than enough time where they were winning their blocks, maintaining their blocks, and giving him time in the pocket. 
Shaq Barrett exploded on Rick Wagner more than once and got sacks, man. He was either... He was uh, in more than one situation. I was watching the game on Xbox with a few of my friends in a party, and we were talking about it. And one of my friends, Boney, he made the point that Rick Wagner was only using his hands to try and stop Shaq Barrett on when he was pass blocking. Uh, he wasn't using his lower body to try and shift to get in front of him. He was reaching. He was grabbing out, trying to just upper body him because Rick Wagner is so much bigger and in theory so much stronger than Shaq Barrett, you would think he'd be able to just push him away and corral him further away from the pocket. The problem was Barrett was coming wide. He was coming around Rick Wagner to outside of where Wagner was lined up, where Wagner had to kick step and kick out to try and get his body in front of him. But Wagner wasn't reacting quick enough, and he was still only trying to use his upper body. Later on in the game, when the Packers were trying to come back, you noticed that he was Wagner was really aggressively kicking out to try and get in front of where Barrett was coming from because he had burned him more than once for sacks. I believe the Buccaneers had five sacks in the game. They had five sacks in the first meeting between the two teams. Yeah, five sacks Rodgers took, and he lost 32 yards in the process of taking all of those sacks. The Packers' offensive line, which was a strong suit during the regular season, was a glaring weakness today, is a fair assessment. Both tackles, whether it was Billy Turner, who was filling in for Bakhtiari, or Rick Wagner, who was the starter during the regular season, both had a really hard time with the Buccaneer pass rush men. And as someone who had the Packers, who thought the Packers were going to win, the same problems from the first game still persisted in this game, but they weren't as pronounced, and that's why the score wasn't as lopsided. I really did think the Packers were going to make a run at some point in this game just because of how vulnerable the Tampa Bay secondary was. I mean, they lost both... They didn't have Antoine Winfield Jr., who got who was injured last week against the Saints, tried to give it a go in warm-ups and wasn't able to go. And then they lost Whitehead, who got hurt during the course of the game, when he tried to tackle Jamal Williams, at some point, you got to try and exploit that matchup. And they did, the Packers, as the game got on, they got into a better rhythm offensively because they had to throw so often. And the the Tampa secondary is a little suspect if the pass rush doesn't get home. I know I, I mentioned it during the preview episode on Friday, but the Giants had opportunities against them on Monday Night Football where if the pass rush wasn't getting to Daniel Jones, the receivers were going to get open down the field. It was just a matter of them having enough time down the field to get open, which wasn't the case today for Rodgers. There were a few cases where they were, but we we saw all of the underlying issues with the way Green Bay has played during the season rear their ugly head, and then... Like I said in the introduction, like I said in the last segment talking about McDermott, like I'm going to say right now, Matt LaFleur didn't play to win today. He played not to lose, and it's the most damning indictment of a head coach in today's NFL. You have one of the most talented players ever. You have Aaron freaking Rodgers. Yeah, we're going to take the field goal, and Mike Patton's defense, who's given up 28 points so far, is going to, uh, they're going to try and get the stop here so we can get the ball back and try and come down the field and score with no timeouts, and we need a two-point conversion. 
Yeah, you you sounded how you heard how facetious I sounded when I said that. That's how it should have sounded. The voice in Matt Lafleur's head that tells him the decisions to make. You know that little the, your subconscious, the voice in your head when you're making decisions, you're trying to evaluate. Well, should I do this? Should I do that? Matt Lafleur's little voice should have told him, "I've got Aaron Rodgers. I should ask him what." we want to do here it's fourth and goal from the eight yard line we're down eight points we need to go and score no i think i'm going to take a field goal that voice that tells you to kick a field goal in that game you gotta you gotta ignore him you gotta pretend it's not there NFC title games, man. You don't get that many chances to be here in your career. Yes, LaFleur has been the head coach of the Packers for two years. He's gotten here both years. But I really do think in the bottom of my heart, a lot of the Packers' success this year, whether it's the efficiency, whether it's the conversion rates, I think it's a really, really dependent on what Rodgers does. I'm not saying that if you put an average quarterback in that offense, he wouldn't be successful. I'm saying I think that Aaron Rodgers makes the Packers a lot better than they would be if they had an average quarterback. If they had Jimmy Garoppolo, they're probably a nine-win team. I mean, they're running a crib notes version of the 49er offense. Probably about a nine-win team if they had Jimmy Garoppolo. Rodgers is worth three or four wins, even at his advanced age now, in his mid- late 30s, you can say. What Rodgers does on a weekly basis is stupendous, whether it's the pre-snap stuff, the... Every aspect of Rodgers' game, aside from his pure scrambling ability, is still elite. I'm sure he's going to go on Pat McAfee's show during the course of this week and talk about what went wrong, his frustrations. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of speculation from sources around the league, just fans of the NFL who wonder if he's maybe a little bit frustrated that LaFleur didn't give him the ball in a fourth-in-the-season situation and instead opted to play defense. This isn't about that. I would love to have Aaron Rodgers. There's no universe where the Giants are going to do the smart thing and try and trade for either him or Deshaun Watson. So I've already ruled that out of my head. As Even though Ethan, my boss, my dear boss, Ethan Levy at Gotham, is going to try and speak in a new existence, I don't think it's going to happen. And purely from a what went wrong standpoint with the Packers this year, it's hard to evaluate based on one game in a knee-jerk situation. I'm going to rewatch the game during the course of the week and write a post-mortem, uh, well, I don't want to call it an autopsy because it's kind. that's kind of a bit aggressive, but we'll call it an in-memoriam for what went wrong for both the Packers and for the Bills because I think there are important lessons to take away from both teams from a building perspective as far as personnel, as well as just the game flow situations where the Packers ended up having to chase Tampa a lot of the game 
Oh my, I'm sorry. <laughs> While I've been recording, I threw the Oilers-Jets game on on my TV, and I've been half paying attention to that while I've been recording. And the uh, the Oilers blew a 2-1 lead with like eight minutes to go in the game. They they were trailing 3-2. to They were up 2-1. to They were losing 3-2. to They tied the game, and then they won with uh, .07 seconds left on the clock on a Leon Dreisaitl goal, who... Uh, yeah, the Oilers are a very entertaining team. Uh, let me wrap up here on football, and I'll give you a rundown on what the show is looking right for the rest of the week. The Packers had to chase a lot of the game, and like the first matchup against Tampa Bay, when you play an aggressive defense that blitzes a lot and leaves their corners out on isolations, on islands, you gotta you got to get your guys down the field. And the Packers had a couple of drops. They had a couple bad non-go-for-it situations, and there is going to be conjecture if Rodgers wants out of Green Bay, and I wouldn't blame him if he did want out of Green Bay. I mean, the man himself said there are a lot of people on this team who don't know about their futures for next year, including me. So, we'll see. I assume that's just Rodgers trying to, you know, Diffuse the situation a little bit and make the story a little bit less about the Packers losing the game and make it about him and his process, which is honestly good leadership. I know there have been a few former teammates of Rodgers who have come out. I th- Greg Jennings, the most notable, the former wide receiver who uh, once put the team on his back against the Saints, if you uh, you know what I'm talking about, most famously kind of called Rodgers a dick, who thought he was smarter than he was, kind of overmanaged the situation, didn't listen to then-head coach Mike McCarthy, that kind of thing. But Rodgers probably isn't going anywhere for at least another year. If not, he might just write out the rest of his contract in Green Bay and then walk off into the sunset in about two years. But aside from all that, aside from the long-range... Where do we go from here without Rodgers? Green Bay's got to figure it out on defense, man. How many times have they been in one of these title games where the defense is what let them down? And it's reasonable to say that Green Bay should have scored more than 26 points today. They should have. They absolutely should have. They settled for field goals. They had the one interception. It's a legitimate criticism, but... They had a slightly better defense, especially early in the game where Tampa converted, like, I want to say it was six straight third downs, seven straight third downs before they had to settle for a punt. That's the difference. The teams, at this point in the history of the NFL, the teams that are sustainably successful are downright lethal on third down, they control the ball, and they can score points at will. It's the most important thing in football in today's league. I know the Super Bowl two years ago, the final score was, you know, 13-3. to It was an ugly one, the Rams-Patriots Super Bowl. That defense prevailed, and what was the Super Bowl last year? Yeah, the 49ers and the Chiefs, they scored their points. You're going to have to score... I would say, realistically speaking, for the foreseeable future, until there is a defensive revolution or there's a new crop of defensive player talent 
that can mitigate it, you're going to need to be able to score 30-ish points a game to win the Super Bowl and be a real contender. It's one of the reasons I was never that high on the Steelers. It's why I was high on the Bills. During the course of the regular season, they scored a lot of friggin' points. They won by a lot in a lot of their games. It's why Seattle in the second half of the season worried me. It's why I was never that sold on the Rams. The Buccaneers, it took them a while to find their sweet spot on offense. I mean, up until about week 11, week 12, there were still questions of whether or not they were going to make the playoffs. I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, looking at the schedule they had in front of them, that seems a bit ridiculous now, but they have legitimate issues on offense. They struggled against the Bears. They struggled against the Giants. They struggled against the Rams. And it's reasonable to say they have figured out their problems. The The Bucks weren't great today. Brady had three interceptions. They didn't stop the Packers on defense as much as the Packers kind of stopped themselves. Uh, each of the Buccaneers games in the postseason thus far, I haven't been too impressed. They just... They managed the game better. They scored the points. They were aggressive. Even though they had the three interceptions from Brady, they they had me sitting there holding a Packers minus three ticket at, with about eight minutes to go. And I had a pit in my stomach. And I realized, well, fuck, Tom Brady got me for my hard-earned American dollars again. Here I am, the stupid ass I am. some point man you gotta figure it out and the Packers for all of the blessings that having Aaron Rodgers has given them they haven't paid the man back yeah he's got the money he's gonna go down as one of the three best players ever at the position he's got one Super Bowl he's gonna finish with three MVPs maybe four if he can manage to sustain this prime even longer I know he'd be the first one to tell you he'd trade all three of those super, those MVPs for one more Super Bowl. That's why you play team sports, man. You want that trophy. Team sports are about the team. The guys who get it, the MVP is nice and all, but all of them will tell you they'd rather have a Super Bowl title. Leads me to a very compelling week. We've got an extra week, as everyone knows. We got the week between now and the Super Bowl to just kind of, we're going to circle back. We're going to talk a little bit about other sports. Got interesting guests lined up for the rest of this week. Got UFC talk. We've got sports media talk. We've got hockey. A little bit of football. There's a lot of topics we want, I'm going to use this week between now and the Super Bowl to talk about. Next week, though. Super Bowl heavy and off-season heavy. I love the football off-season more than anything in the world because football is the most interesting sport possible in terms of team building because of just how many decisions go into making everything. So far, I've got an Eagles episode booked, which will be a lot of fun, my friend Mark. Man is as diehard Birds fan as they come. Even in week 17, when they had Nate Sudfeld in there, that man still wanted the Birds to win that game. And then, one of the more interesting storylines that's developed over the course of this last week 
the Lions and Matthew Stafford have agreed to part ways this offseason and that the Lions are going to facilitate a trade for him. So Casey Thoreau will be uh, making her recurring guest debut, her subsequent appearance. She was on the Election Day episode, which uh, was about the Dodgers winning the World Series, but didn't kind of seem that important at the time. She'll be back to talk about the uh, Lions, Matt Stafford, where they go from here, and just like... What it's like being a Lions fan, because uh, it's not easy. I feel like we've learned a decent amount as a audience in terms of football, what works, what doesn't work from this season, but uh, the people in football, they're still not learning what works and what doesn't work, and it's why we here at the... Uh, us up here in the uh, upper bowl are going to uh, keep yelling down and acting like we know more than them because sometimes we do. You know what I would have done if I were in uh, Lambeau Field and uh, close enough to the Packers bench for Matt LaFleur to hear me yell? I'd have called him a yellow-bellied coward like I was Trill Withers. I'd have called him a yellow-bellied coward for not trying to win the freaking game, man. On no planet were you going to stop Tom Brady from getting enough first downs to run out the clock after kicking that field goal. Absolutely gutless, gutless coaching. You don't want to risk it. You don't deserve to be a head coach in the NFL. For as good as Matt LaFleur was during the regular season, as good as Sean McDermott was during the regular season, man, these are playoff games. You do what worked for you during the course of the regular season. You go for it on fourth down. You gotta score touchdowns against the elite teams. Now that I've cleared my chest, I'm not angry anymore. This was my therapy for the day. The bad coaching juju is leaving my body. I'm more relaxed. Thinking about that the Rangers lost the third game in a row, even though they've outplayed their opponents the last three games. It's fine. Everything is fine. There are sports to watch. I've got guests lined up for this week. I've got blog ideas to write. I've got the podcast. I've got you guys. I've got the audience. It's going to be a good week. It's going to be a good week. The bad coaching juju is leaving my body and I am no longer angry. Gave you guys the rundown of guests this week. Going to be some interesting topics. A little bit of a sampling for everyone. Tomorrow's episode will be about the state of sports media. Wally Matthews, decorated beat writer. He's covered the Yankees. He's covered boxing. He's written for every single publication in the New York area. He's written for the news, the, da the Daily News, the Post, Newsday, the New York Times. He hasn't written for the Wall Street Journal. Okay. I, he's written for every New York publication except the Wall Street Journal. He wrote for ESPN. He, he, he got a radio show on ESPN for a while. Wally and I had a great talk tomorrow. I hope you guys tune in for that, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'll see you guys tomorrow.